1: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Valencia. Art loves a crisis. So much so that I have previously used this sentence as a pithy introduction to more than one of my programmes. Today, I'll be speaking with my guest about a crisis too, but this time, the crisis in art may be a symptom of a much more severe problem, the crisis of liberalism. Art after liberalism by Nicholas Gamso is an account of creative practice at a moment of converging political and social rifts. The apparent failures of liberal thinking are a starting point for an inquiry into emerging ways of living, acting and making art in the company of others. What happens when the framework of the nation-state, the figure of the enterprising individual and the premise of limitless development can no longer be counted on to produce a world worth living in? It is increasingly clear that these commonplace liberal conceptions have failed to improve life in any lasting way. In fact, they conceal fundamental connections to enslavement, colonization, moral debt, and ecological devastation. Nick's book reflects on how art may decide what comes after liberalism. This is a question that has been on my mind a lot lately, and I wish that more artists and critics took it to heart. My conversation with Nick, inspired by his book, which we here now, moves between critique and speculation. This is a mode of engagement that the current moment demands of us all. I'm very happy to say that Nicholas Gamze joins me now. Nick, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Nick, we seem to be in a very post-liberal moment, or at least this is a term that comes up day by day. But before we get into any of this, I'd like to learn a little bit about you. Yes, well, I guess
0: my background has always been um, interdisciplinary. Uh, my training, to the extent that I have training, was in a field. <laughs> American studies, um, which is a, a kind of interdisciplinary discourse. Um, you know, there was the old American studies, which was very interested in uh, questions of um, inherency. What is the American novel? What is the American sensibility? Mm-hmm. And over the last thirty years, uh, the discourse has really changed and is much more critical and attentive to um, some of the underlying uh, systemic dimensions of uh, American culture and politics. So. Uh, the U.S.'s relationship to empire, um, as well as more, I suppose, questions drawn from uh, political theory. What is the nation state? What's the relationship between colonial settlement uh, and indigenous peoples in the North American continent? Um, How did the history of uh, enslavement realize or produce uh, modern uh, American culture? And so, as I say, it is a very interdisciplinary field and very concerned with the question of of liberalism and kind of um, mm-hmm. gave me a vocabulary I suppose for thinking about uh, liberalism and uh, not just in the sense maybe it's worth saying not just in the sense of you know liberal versus conservative in terms of electoral politics but liberalism as a philosophy that has grounding in uh, world processes
1: yeah I think we're going to have to get to that definition pretty soon <laughs> continue how, how did you get from this kind of critical perspectives to to contemporary arts? Uh, I
0: mean, this field, I don't want to put too much um, stock in this this particular field formation because also I was thinking with um, art history, uh, visual culture studies, what we call cultural studies and literary studies, but it is attentive to the ways that um, uh, art and aesthetics produces um, social and political realities. Uh, so, I mean, I think, uh, uh, and I had always been very interested in space and geography and thinking about how um, art, obtains in relationship to um, urban space. And I think a a really pivotal moment for me in in thinking about this was uh, seeing Kara Walker's installation in 2014 Mm. in um, Brooklyn, um, which was uh, this massive sphinx made out of um, sugar, which sat at the center of the Domino uh, sugar refinery in Williamsburg, which is a neighborhood that has been completely transformed um, through private enterprise. Um, it is mm-hmm. one of the earth sites of gentrification in the United States. Uh, and I was struck by the idea that her work was thematizing not only the history of sugar um, in colonial modernity but also um, the fact that uh, racial capitalism lives on in the form of uh, of gentrification and in in a sense in visual culture and in um, uh, the field of representation. But the thing about the piece was that it People went to it, uh, many people went to it, I think, expecting something that was um, somber um, and created a scene of dignity or even enlightenment. Um, but in fact, it was uh, uh, a work that completely aggravated uh, differences and underlying hostilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, to me, it was a commentary on the kind of false promises of liberalism. You know, it was about. Um, the idea that cross-class and cross-race encounters would produce a sense of, again, enlightenment or uh, mutual good feeling, um, and it really uh, blew up that sensibility. And it was funded by the developers of the site, so it was, you know, I think Walker was very conscious of all of this. So this kind of, you know, once I saw this as being um, a commentary on liberalism, I thought, well, this is actually kind of a small part of something that is is much bigger and very prevalent in the arts.
1: Yeah, that's that's a, that's a beautiful introduction. As ever, I'll be able to put a link to an image of this work for mm-hmm. listeners. And even though Kara Walker doesn't feature in your book, right. or at least um, she has escaped me, I think it's a beautiful way into thinking about the subject matter of the book, mm-hmm. that relationship between arts public functions as they are performed by arts instantiations yeah. in the public realm, usually with a weird mixture of institutional validation mm-hmm. and private mm-hmm. and public funding, Mm -hmm. and a whole history of representation, a whole history of social outreach and social utility. But in so doing, whenever art turns out in those kind of spaces, it is also somehow very weirdly self-referential, self-critical, in a way that perhaps is hollow. I may be front-loading quite a lot here with this question, but... It would be good to start to unraveling some of those failures and some of those definitions yeah. the way that you do in the book, and and before we 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 nail them, maybe it would be good to to look at another example. You open the book with a beautiful chapter. Um, I say beautiful because actually I, I was really taken in by a lot of your writing style mm-hmm. and the Thank way you. that you devote chapters to individual works or individual practices in a way that is kind of rare in. In, in scholarship of, mm. of 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 the, the format that, that I expected yeah, of, of this book. So you you start by writing about a public installation called Monument by the artist Manaf Halbuni from 2017. This is a work that consists of three public buses, is that what they are, mm. um, that have been installed in the public public square in Dresden in Germany. And they are they're installed sideways, so they they're like mm-hmm. three three obelisks, mm-hmm. and that's a work that a little bit like Kara Walker's points to many things happening at the same time. There's a history. There's a there's a mig- migrant crisis happening, but even more than Walker's work, it also solicits um, elicits a lot of responses from the public that, that interacts with it. So I wonder if I could ask you to to retell some of the story and, yes. and some of the things you observe.
0: Sure. Um, and first, what I would say is that, um, you know, Walker's piece is very uh, resonant in the um, American context. Hmm. Uh, and it, again, draws on the kind of history of the Americas and um, of uh, colonial America. Um, and I was curious to see other kinds of uh, other sites, other points of convergence. I mean, the the this introduction is called Convergences. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, this piece immediately struck me when I, I learned of it. Um, yes, it's three decommissioned city buses set on their ends. Um, and they're uh, in the middle of the uh, main square in Dresden where there's also the um, Frauenkirche, is that right? The Church mm-hmm. of Our Lady, um, which h- has a, a history of its own um, and I think was built with money from kind of uh, infantile um, uh a financial capitalism in the 18th century. Uh, and the piece is uh, meant to replicate three buses that are set that way in Aleppo, which was the Syrian city that was, you know, uh, ravaged by um, aerial bombardment mm-hmm. during the Syrian Civil War and is, uh, was a site of a kind of proxy war, I suppose, between um, Russia and the West. Uh, and so there's a kind of uh, colonial formation there as well. Um, and the artist uh, is half German and half Syrian. And he likes to think of um, these two sites as being of a piece because of course, Dresden weathered the um, aerial uh, war, warfare at the end of World War II and was essentially leveled. Um, and uh, this Church of Our Lady was, um, was repaired after the war. So there's all of these themes of uh, reclamation, repair, uh, recovery, as well as ruination loss mm. um, that circulate around this object. And what, what is so interesting to me, and, and this is also, I suppose, how it builds on what I was saying a moment ago about Walker's work, um, is that it conducts political conflict. Um, it becomes yeah. a gathering point um, for different factions, um, including these um, you know, neo-fascist uh, right wingers who have been holding uh, marches in the square every Monday afternoon. Um, And uh, it also drew on uh, what we think of as the traditional public sphere. I mean, I think the mayor of Dresden was there to um, cut a ribbon or somehow dedicate the statue. Uh, And interestingly, it's been, it, it showed as well in Berlin, and I think it's in Amsterdam now or was recently, um, and in those contexts, it loses some of its power. Uh, it loses some of its, yeah. um, let's say, agency uh, as, a, as an object in space because it is in a much more, although it is in public space, it is in a much more institutional frame. It's not um, there to aggravate. It's not there to, um, you know, to pose a challenge or to get in anyone's way. Um, so I, I was interested in it as a political allegory, I suppose, but also... Um, as a, a real object in urban space that conducts urban movements, perambulations, um, and when I say movement, I'm also referring to social and political movements that seem mm-hmm. to um, converge at at this site. Yeah.
1: You you mentioned the institutional uh, framing of yes. this artwork when it has traveled, and I think one of the first questions that comes up in a book, and you you address it throughout, is the Relationship between the art object and its institution. Um, so, so in a sense that you know, we, we we lose the context of Dresden, the bombed city, when we move an artwork like the monument yes. right, exactly. to somewhere like Amsterdam, where it will be, you know, it will have a different branding to it. Right. That's that's a, that's only a thin metaphor for the fact exactly. that the institution already owns quite a lot of the discourse, owns quite right. a lot of the the power of any work by the sheer act of commissioning it. Maybe I could ask you to to try to enumerate some of the ways in which, which we ask this. I mean, some of these things are in, incredibly obvious. You know, institutional critiques and legacies have, right. have exploded over the last few years in as much as the art world seems to have completely turned mm-hmm. against the mm-hmm. institutions. But I have a feeling that that, in a sense, covers up for... For some of the more fundamental problems of art in its relationships to institutions, when it comes to the delivering on the promise of liberalism.
0: Yes. Well, I mean, I'm going to make the more conceptual statement first, which really just occurred to me, which is that institutions um, like uh, institutions like museums and also I think universities share this have the same, require the same kind of uh, legitimacy, popular legitimacy as political institutions do. Um, Yes, they are funded by um, Mm -hmm. often very nefarious uh, uh, financial trusts. um, But in order for them to have uh, wherewithal, in order for them to have influence, in order for artists to want to show their work there, they have to have these kind of extra institutional components. um, And that does rely on creating or drawing on a public um, so, you know, that's that's to say that in institutions can be, therefore they are mutable and they can be reproduced in certain ways mm-hmm. um, and possibly they can be um, divorced from their financial entanglements. I mean, I suppose that's an open question and, and you're kind of implying in the way you, you have um, introduced this topic that, um, you know, that's not enough. And that to uh, mm-hmm. to run out a, uh, a a board member, we can talk about the controversy of okay. the Whitney, which I discuss in my book. To run out a board member is um, just a, a mere token, um, and that the institution's logics, um, the kind of ethos of the institution uh, remains, and that's the thing that needs to be to be challenged. Um, uh, so I, I don't know if I if I necessarily agree with that. I mean, I, I think. Uh, and forgive me if I'm misunderstanding. You know, I think it, it is no significant that um, that the boards of these institutions are being challenged, um, because one of the things that uh, contemporary art museums have done is privatize culture, um, and so they they need those kinds of um, financial arrangements. Uh, and so to highlight those, most museum goers are not aware of those. They don't read the names of the donors, and the donors' names are of course disconnected from their um, from their industries. Um, so i think making visible those connections is quite important and also w- once you do that you can see um that the institution might have something in common with uh with other kinds of um uh, agencies um i'm thinking here of the way that um you know so so this group uh, decolonized this place that i've worked with a little bit um and mm-hmm. talked to about this book uh, or, or have thought about with regard to this, this project, um, one of the things they've done is uh, establish uh, in, I suppose, the public eye um, connections between uh, the boards of museums like the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York and the Museum of Modern Art and the U.S. Army and the IDF and mm. the New York Police Department. Um, and that's quite interesting because it does, you know, it, it does kind of challenge the idea that Institutions are uh, hermetically sealed, um, or, that they, or that the or that the field of art is is apolitical, um, or, or that artists have no kind of agency in the world beyond uh, museums and um, and kind of the art the art world as we usually think of it.
1: Well, I'm, I think you've beautifully set up my next question, which is we, we've, you've just discussed. You've just discussed, you know, the failings and the way to maybe right. conceptualise and challenge some of the failings of liberal institutions such as yeah. museums and universities. But from then, I think the follow-up question must be: What is it about the liberal in liberal institutions that might be contributing to these projects? And I think, you know, or maybe fifteen minutes into our conversation, it's it's, it's about time we actually gave a Right functional definition of 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 liberalism and and try to discuss its either failings or its fading or or, or mm-hmm. rather maybe your project for reforming aspects of it. Mm-hmm. But let's let's start with a dictionary definition because I think <laughs> I think for, for those That's of our listeners idea. who yeah. might not be living in liberal democracies and particularly those who are not you know don't have the word liberal in one, on one of their ballot boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Well, they are probably the ones who are most uh, attuned to, you know, perhaps what it really means and doesn't mean. It seems to me that liberalism, to give a somewhat reductive but useful definition that we can unpack, liberalism is a kind of complex of ideas about freedom. Um, And those can be, and of course, freedom is a big word also worth unpacking, but some Mm -hmm. some of those um, variations could be individual freedom, free markets, free speech and free expression, free mobility and movement. But of course, understanding or or coming to terms with the idea of freedom requires coming to terms with its opposite. I mean, how do you know you're free? Mm -hmm. Because someone else isn't free. Um, And so we have these sites of unfreedom, like the prison house, um, and also authoritarian Mm -hmm. societies, you know, which are always bandied about in public discourse in the US, and I think also in Europe, um, as uh, not only the enemy, but the constitutive outside of liberalism. Um, And so we need to um, you know, this was the justification for the wars in um, Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, we need to uh, liberalize these societies because they they don't have freedom you know, and so on. Um, and I think also uh, just the extent to which poverty creates unfreedom, that is also a part of, of a liberal mindset because mm. that is what sanctions sort of enterprise culture. Um, and, um, you know, the liberty of contract, the idea that you can attain a kind of Freedom or access to the world um, by you know working your ass off, uh, I suppose. Um, you know that's that's also part of this kind of nebulous um, concept of, of liberalism. Um, and one, th- I mean, I think the way though that uh, perhaps that's enough for, for now. Um, but I suppose you you did raise the question. You know, what is the relationship between liberalism and these institutions, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think one way of saying it is that the institutions. Are sites where this freedom can be um, enacted. Okay, so the institution is where you can, that is, the museum is where you can put up any work of art, no matter how offensive, gratuitous, and so on. Um, And it's there as evidence of the artist's freedom. Uh, And recently, I think some, let's say, theorists of the museum and its relationship to to carceral culture have pointed out that it shares not only a a period of historical emergence with the prison house, but also again, is the, is the opposite, you know, um, is the kind of conceptual um, alternative to, um, to the prison uh, in in a sense, right? The museum is where you put the things that you value, whereas the prison is where you put things that you discard and devalue and so on. So it actually serves a kind of, um, elemental function, I, I think, for uh, for liberalism. Um, and secondly, there's this question of what, this is a big topic, I suppose, in political theory, what underwrites liberalism? I mean, it's not just finance, hmm. it's also labor, um, which clearly has a relationship to um, financial capitalism. Who built the museums? Who maintains the museums? Who builds the public sphere and maintains them? Some places that answer is very easy. I mean, who built the US Capitol building? Enslaved people, right? Um, and in other cases, you have to do some work to sort of figure out what, what that relationship is. But I think that is really there, too. There's always this dark side um, to, to liberalism. Um, th- that is to say, there's always a, um, a kind of, there's, there's always a sourcing. There's always, and this is why liberalism arose as the kind of sunny side of uh, colonialism. This is a mm-hmm. off-repeated truism, but I think it it makes sense in terms of, of this conversation.
1: Yeah, so the, the way you describe liberalism is almost irredeemable. Um, all the all the dark sides that, that you just alluded to seem to be completely built into the yeah. whole thing, which which kind of leads me to, to my next question, which again stems from the title of the book. Are we thinking about art in this context as a diagnostic tool for liberalism ills? Or are we thinking about art as a corrective? Mm. And I think that that makes that makes yeah. quite a lot of difference in how we approach um, what it is the art world has been doing to itself, both aesthetically and representationally. Right. Um, in as much as I think we we can think we can we can we can possibly quite easily see that the last ten years of artistic production, particularly in the globalized art market and the globalized institutional sphere has been a way to dangle solutions to mm-hmm. some of liberals failings I mean we, we, we maybe disagree a little bit about the effectiveness of some of these these gestures um but I have a feeling that you you might concur with me that the problems of liberalism want to be overcome. Yes. just by expunging one board member after another right. or by, you right. know, protesting unfair working conditions for gallery invigilators, that the problem might be slightly, slightly further. So I, I want to ask you a, a version of the chicken and egg question, essentially, and, and, and see where, where that takes us.
0: Yes. Well, it's a great question. I mean, maybe the way to, to respond is with an an example. Um, and I know that this is something you've thought a lot about, and we did correspond a little bit about it, but the, um, the crisis, sort of the the scandal, I suppose, at the Whitney Museum. Um, mm-hmm. I have a chapter about in this in this book about that uh, mm-hmm. that event um, or or that point of convergence, um, and in particular, I focus on the work of forensic architecture. Okay, um, and I think that it's that the work of this group, and I can sort of say what it's what it's all about in a moment. But I think it does show both the kind of The diagnostic um, aspect that you're referring to, in other words, Mm -hmm. how do we see the uh, failures, or as you say, the fadings of liberalism, um, or the contradictions that are are part of uh, protests within a liberal society, um, as well as producing uh, alternatives, or giving us a way out, or doing a kind of reconstructive work?
1: Okay, well... Maybe just to run through the beginnings of the controversies at the Whitney. And this is something that has come up on the podcast a few times before. And I'll leave a link for listeners to the story so they can follow this if they, if they so, so wish. But basically what happened is that one of the trustees of the Whitney, Warren Candace, was revealed to be a major shareholder of an arms manufacturing, arms trading company implicated in a bunch of potential uh, human rights abuses. This sparked protests by groups like the colonized space that you mentioned, but culminated with um, a presentation of a work by Forensic Architecture at the Whitney Biennial.
0: Forensic Architecture, um, which is, of course, a a group of, yes, architects, I suppose, forensic scientists, um, other kinds of researchers, uh, produced a film with Laura Poitras, who had made films about uh, Edward Snowden and... um, Julian Assange, uh, in which they walked through the uses of this uh, triple chaser tear gas in various sites. Um, And the film is full of kind of high tech, uh, dazzling imagery. Uh, There's Mm -hmm. aspects of the, I mean, it's it's, in some spaces, it's been sort of trashed as this um, spectacle of uh, forensic research. Um, which is very evident, you know, forensic research is used all the time in um, much less glamorous context, you know, and by um, <laughs> <laughs> lawyers and investigators and so on. So it's not exactly a, a novel idea. Um, and uh, one of the ironies of this work or contradictions, you could say, is that it was commissioned by uh, the curators of the biennial. Uh, and so the artists seemed in a sense to be complicit. Um, and not only were they collaborating with the museum perhaps to gussy up its own um, skeletons in the financial closet, but there also seemed to be this capitulation or fealty to, to tech development. I mean, they used, um, these research protocols developed by, um, proprietary, uh, but by, by tech companies, you know, these softwares like, uh, like, I think it's called NVIDIA, um, and so they were, a sense, in a sense, contributing to um, uh, to this proprietary software, and so on. Um, so that's so that's an example, maybe of um, you know those contradictions are, are a way of, of identifying um, the as you say the the contradictions of um, protest within a liberal public sphere, or protest in a museum space, or politically engaged art within a museum space. Um, at the same time, uh, it was part of this larger kind of social movement. Um, that involved the boycotts and artist pullouts. Um, and this eventually led to the sky um, being um, essentially forced to resign from the board of trustees. Yeah. So there was an immediate outcome. And you could say, well, that's just one instance. You know, the story isn't over. And that's all true. Um, but you could also say, well, there was a momentum there. Um, and what's kind of more interesting to me. Um, and this is really, I suppose, the answer to your question about what alternatives to liberalism are there, or how do we think beyond um, the liberal public sphere, um, this this activity created a liberal, or excuse me, created a kind of counter-public of people who were not associated mm-hmm. with the institution, um, and who were not um, were not the, the public of the Whitney Biennial, um, which you could think of as being a more institutional kind of public. Um, and so that to me, that kind of reconstructive work um, is is one way of of answering your question. You know, so this piece um, did diagnose the contradictions and dilemmas associated with liberalism, but it also showed you the way that alternatives can form outside of institutions um indeed there was a transnational component you know uh, and this is one way that forensic architecture you could say aided in the protests they did send people out into the field to you know as i say in the book lean over and pick up um disused tear gas uh, spent tear gas canisters right um including artists like emily Jassir um but uh and and organizations like pet but uh other other kinds of people who were involved too. So there was, it was a popular um, effort um, that happened to have one foot inside mm-hmm. the institution. And one could say that was, you know, in some ways that reflects the contradictions of doing um, socially engaged art or institutional critique. You could also say that this was intelligent because there was a foot in the institutional space, right? Uh, you know, it's, it's simply one example out of many different kinds of tactics, uh-huh.
1: I think what you've what you've said is in, incredibly interesting. You've framed a couple of things in ways that I, I haven't quite considered. But before we move on, I want to to give some explicit space to the way you define your project, because I think even in the first chapter of the book, you suggest that once we have diagnosed some of the problems of liberalism, that some of which are might be irredeemable, you do find a very concrete space for. Art and artistic practice itself to to perform within all this. Mm. And I'm going to quote a little bit, and this might be a little There's bit jarring out of out of context, but but I think the language of at least to give a listen to kind of the flavor of the language that you use is quite important. So the way that you you describe the mission of the artist to move towards a horizontal and popular agency in the arts, and that would be a shift away from the symbol and referent and towards the jumble of recalcitrant matter that comprises our world, or put differently away from the representation and towards the phenomenology of relation. So I've already, in in our conversation, I think we've used used ideas like representation a couple of times. Mm -hmm. Maybe I could ask you to talk a little bit about the more abstract, more theoretical ways in which you think this kind of Liberal crisis, is described, and it struck me uh, throughout the book that one of the thinkers that you refer to the most and you draw on quite heavily is Hannah Arendt. Right. So, how how do these perspectives come together in in your thinking about the current moment?
0: Yes. Well, thank you. Um, Hannah Arendt certainly is um, is a a pivotal figure in the book. You know, in a sense, I'm ambivalent about uh, about her, uh, given many of the things she said, especially later in her career, but um, she did give us a vocabulary for thinking about political phenomenology, Um, Mm -hmm. and especially in the context of liberalism, where there's so much attention on kind of individual feats um, or on the representational dimensions of identity politics, uh, which sometimes go nowhere, um, you know, as we know, Uh, this interest in phenomenology in relation, in appearance, uh, in action, uh, seems to me to be very, very useful. I mean, it is a way of channeling our interests in direct action into a wider frame, perhaps. Um, She says something that I, I, in her writings about the American Revolution actually, which is of course a a liberal or bourgeois revolution, nevertheless, Mm -hmm. I think it's worth repeating, Seizing power is not about taking over institutions. It's about picking up power where it lies Mm. in the streets, Uh, and that could mean picking up the cobblestone. You know, I mean, certainly it means that there is power in collaboration, um, and that there is no such thing as power without um, working in concert with others. But it also points us to real matter, uh, to infrastructures, um, to spaces, uh, and and the built environment this is a kind of infrastructure but co- mobilities um thinking about the supply chain crisis for example mm-hmm. um and this was really brought home to me by by looking at the way that um migrants have for example uh run through the channel tunnel between um, yeah. the uk and france right um and uh the huge obstructions that that caused um and obviously mm-hmm. since the beginning of the pandemic and with uh, Climate change, as well. Um, there's been a huge breakdown in the supply chain system, um, and in other kinds of uh, of uh, infrastructure that is central to to capitalism. Um, so there's very practical reasons why I'm interested in that. But I also think it it just gets us away from the idea that art is politically significant because of who the artist is um, or or what it uh, what it shows, what it represents, um, and, and more. What's really more interesting to me is how it conducts bodies in space um, or mm-hmm. how it transforms the spaces where, where it is situated. Uh, and this is also one of the reasons, you know, in this book, I'm, I'm for the most part talking about well-known artists. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. in some cases, this is true of forensic architecture. It's true of Wolfgang Tillman's. Um, it's, I suppose, true of other, other artists who I discuss in some ways, the uh, celebrated nature of their work and persona gets in the way. Um, and so I try to um, step back from the kind of biographical readings um, and turn to what their works do to shape uh, social and political interactions. It's it's, it's not an, a kind of immediate answer to the failures of liberalism or to the crises of liberalism. It is also a way of diagnosing um, the challenges of doing political work in the context of a liberalism that absorbs protest um, and that, that sort of identifies actors and then turns them into um, institutional actors. As it yeah. In other words, identifies abolitionist actors and turns them into institutional actors. I think this yeah. is a way around that.
1: Yeah, that's, I think, the kind of crucial point. And I think it could be argued quite effortlessly that certain artistic practices are so easily co-opted, their critique is so easily co-opted mm-hmm. into hegemonies that one, you know, one would be surprised not to have seen that coming at right. certain points. And, you know, and it could well be argued that forensic architecture has already entered that status yes. right. by right. the time it, it's anywhere near the Whitney.
0: The one thing I would say is that you know, the Palestinian question really is central to Ayal's work.
1: That's Weisman, the founder and director of forensic Architecture,
0: and to his thinking, and that's true for a lot of left-wing Israeli academics. I yeah. don't think that he's an exception in that way. But no. given that uh, the state of Israel is so often used or is so often um, uh, presented as, uh, uh, you know, as a, a kind of rationale for state building, even though it is so transparently um, racist and colonial and problematic and so on, you know, mm. that in and of itself is a useful critique of liberalism. So, you know, yes, there are certain actors who can become institutionalized, but I feel that certain discourses really resist um, institutional absorption. You know, perhaps I mean, perhaps we disagree. But
1: I I don't know if I disagree. It's just I I wonder whether part of liberalism isn't to have the archetypal problems stay exactly where it is. I mean, it might mm-hmm. might play to liberalism's liberal's failing advantages, or rather, you know, the neoliberal project for mm-hmm. institutions, while they still have some power to enact true liberal values as you described them earlier, for those energies to be wasted on some on a game that, that's essentially rigged. Right. That of course right. in no way invalidates any of the activism and, and the experiences of the people on on the ground and, and the realities of the politics that has ensued for for decades. But I I, I wonder whether liberalism itself doesn't necessitate in the same way that you described the fact that the freedom requires an unfreedom where, whether it is almost inevitable. Maybe I'm just in a very, you know, maybe I'm, I'm having my teenage nihilist.
0: Things. No, I think that um, you make a good point. I think you make a good point. I just think it's important to well, to, uh, I don't know if I'm using the metaphor correctly, see the forest for the trees. In other words, mm. yes, we can get hung up on uh, institutional manifestations of liberalism or liberalism in um, popular culture or in uh, the field of the fine arts. Um, but at the end of the day, I suppose what matters most to me is questions of justice um, and people's mm. lives, you know. And so I don't care if some if an anti-Zionist becomes a celebrity within the space of uh, of the arts what's more interesting to me is sort of does he also aid in the project of anti-zionism simultaneously
1: well i do actually have a follow-up question to that because i think one of the things that we should be appending here is whether they make art and whether they make art that can be described as good in in any possible sense and i mean maybe it was a slightly tired kind of category you know that's the Mm. effectiveness the the impact of politically motivated artistic practices matter to its quality. But it does seem to me how quite often that question of aesthetics, aesthetics being another kind of bogeyman word, um, completely goes out of the question. And, and I think there we, we might possibly be um, dropping the ball a little bit Mm -hmm. because if the political activity that i don't disagree with you continues to be valuable i don't care if ir achieves his political gains in one sphere or another that that's up to him that is his politics and kudos Mm -hmm. to him for pursuing pursuing his politics using the resources that he has made available to himself but i do care when the institutions of art and art itself, um, the, the aesthetic aspects of artistic practices, become impoverished because they have become um, locked into that battle of, in, of liberal institutions, which I wonder whether isn't a losing game overall. I'm, I'm unfortunately lack the metaphor to to go back to your earlier question of freedoms versus unfreedoms, but I think this could also be framed in in a, in, in a similar way. Yes. You know, for what what is it that we're not seeing in the museum, for us to be able to reproduce the conversation from the twenty four hour news cycle on the question of Israel and Palestine?
0: Well, I think I uh, understand the question that you're posing, and I've been asked it before regarding this book and other works. Uh, you're, in other words, uh, the, more of a comment, I suppose, that people. One person has said to me, um, "You're talking about works that I don't want to look at." right? Um, And there's no uh, beauty or kind of aesthetic merit to some of the works that you're talking about. I I mean, I suppose in a way it's debatable. Um, uh, For me, the reason why I'm intrigued by these works is, yes, because they're interesting, which is obviously a Mm catch-all word, but one worth pausing over. I mean, they do uh, animate my my consciousness they do um make me think harder about uh what appears within the frame of the work perhaps and also um what the artist might be drawing on or what you know what i as a viewer or others are experiencing i find those questions intensely interesting um is is that aesthetic Mm. i mean it, it is I suppose a sensation I have a (laughs) thrill that I get from looking at some of the artworks. Um, But I also do think, um, and this comes through maybe a little bit in the chapter on Tillman's and, and in some of the chapters that kind of contest, you know, one thing we haven't talked about yet is that many of the artworks I'm looking at resist politics as such, and don't Mm -hmm. want to be uh, in a book called art after liberalism and don't want to be a part of this conversation and disdain Hannah Arendt and disdain, uh, the space of politics, the space of sovereignty, the space of worldliness, and so on. Right. Um, so, and and prefer perhaps we could say, I mean, the theoretical frame might be the social, um, but uh, prefer aesthetic enjoyment um, and pleasure mm. as a mode of um, world building. Uh, mm. And I think that that is is quite quite important. And in fact, I just want to say that I think seeking out. Unalienated pleasure is one of the most important things that art activists can do, um, and is one of the reasons for art activism. is a kind of belief in the ability to create without being being used by institutions or having your um, your your capacities channeled into uh, into capitalism or or into uh, into the the art world and its predatory manifestations.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think that's, that's, a, that's a nice silver lining that you just ended yeah. up on. And for, for me, the, the need for a you know, better functional definition of the word aesthetics and its mm-hmm. many implications is becoming clearer and clearer. You know, like, like the, the cognition of a work like those that made by forensic architecture, of course, is aesthetics. And by every understanding of, the, of that word, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that it should be excluded from, from that field.
0: Yes. And if I may add something, I mean, aesthetics, this, this goes back to the question of relation rather than representation. Yeah. Uh, aesthetics become the, a kind of powerful force that an artwork can marshal. So sometimes you see something, this is the case with forensic architecture and other examples. Sometimes you see something that is visually striking or dazzling, um, and it is used in the service of power. I mean, this is completely what, um, Post-industrial capitalism, um, you know, the, the kind of logic of the spectacle that is that is employed um, or the uses of beauty um, in certain industries. Uh, you know, on the other hand, those forces can can be used to to create uh, or to um, to induce political commitments um, to attract uh, a kind of counterpublic, public um, to to bring about a sharing or, or a kind of consciousness. So, I, I think that aesthetics can, all, you know, one doesn't have to um, separate aesthetics and politics. I see the two mm-hmm. realms as being very complementary in certain ways.
1: Well, talking about the, the kind of easy application of the word aesthetics, let's move on to your chapter about Wolfgang Tillmans, who, yeah. I mean, I'm not being cheap here. He does make visually stunning work and has yeah. done for about um, 20 years, if not more. I'll I'll put in links to to a few key works for listeners, but just to maybe describe some of the things that Tillmans is known for. Um, It's his portrait photography of kind of Berlin scene of the 80s and the 90s, -hmm. usually young, pretty people wearing Mm -hmm. sportswear, lots of polyester, looking quite sexy, looking quite quite what I guess we would now call queer, even though I I don't think he would have subscribed to those labels Mm -hmm. straight away. And Tillmans had quite a... Quite a big presence in London over the last last twenty years, and in particular, he came back to the fore in two thousand and sixteen when he was one of the people um, spearheading campaigns uh, for Britain to remain within the European right. Union, producing a whole bunch of posters with slogans like "No man is an island." I mean, he he did not succeed, um, mm-hmm. which I think he bemoans in in many interviews. But I'm, I really enjoy the way in which you try to bring his politics. And I'm going to posit that, that Tillmans is not only an example of a liberal artist, but he's also an example of the perfect neoliberal artist in many senses. So the way you bring his aesthetic work and, or rather the work itself, the work that doesn't explicitly say vote X or Y, or you know, fix this particular social problem um, with his politics proper,
0: Yes, I think that it's a successful reading. Um, mm. And I, I, he certainly is. I mean, that is a case where, yes, looking at his work and in particular, the more didactic work associated with Brexit and and some of his I mean, he's a writer too. a lot of his kind of political commentary, um, you know, is uh, symptomatic of uh, the contradictions of liberalism or of the kind of failures of liberalism. Um, or the challenges of being a being a politically engaged artist, but also being a, c- a celebrity, essentially, you know, and at the same time, I do think there's something I mean, as you say, the work is visually stunning. But also, um, it it is attractive, you know, I mean, mm. it, it is, uh, it does do that work of um, drawing an audience together or conducting a group of spectators into a space um it thematizes bodies in motion um it gives us um a, a kind of uh point or or an anchor for the phenomenology of relation uh it it does this in a way and and often in counterpoint with liberalism so one of the things i talk about maybe i should just spell it out a bit a bit <laughs> um yes he has this series of posters that are around brexit and he was uh you know, a champion of remain at other points. He's um, done these kind of travelogues going, for example, to St. Petersburg. And um, also he spent a lot of time in Africa. He just had a show in, uh, in Lagos um, where he appears to be a sort of emissary from the free West uh, Mm -hmm. showing the um, clean and sparkling image of the kind of queer success story. uh, And, um, offers a, a hand to people who are in need. Um, but what is so interesting to me about certain projects like that, in particular, his work in St. Petersburg, is that it it was a counterpoint to a show at the Hermitage Museum. Um, and so it does exist in relation to his institutional validity. Um, and he sort of took the opportunity to build those bridges with, um, with the people who he worked with. Yes, that is a kind of... Uh, Liberal gesture. Uh, I think he's conscious of his status as a um, major figure and someone who has been validated by institutions. Yes, yes. Um, But again, what is most kind of interesting to me and compelling and perhaps recursive um, is the way that he thinks about uh, materiality, uh, infrastructure, mobilities, infrastructures. I mean, all of these images on airplanes, on trains, and so on. He's really helping us to. To grapple with the idea of the world, not just as a totality, but um, as something one can be embedded in. And I think that, you know, I, I feel strongly the desire to defend him um, because while I, I share some of the ambivalence about his, um, some of his political statements, I think it comes from a place of really wanting to engage with the world and to be a political actor and, and not to um, be kind of sheltered uh, in his celebrity, as a lot of artists are. Um, and as a lot of people in politics certainly are. Um, so I, I admire that worldliness, um, and I, it comes from a particular position and a sensibility that I think was learned through engaging in queer subculture, and that's kind of what I argue in the, uh, in the book. Um, and hmm. also he's showing us, you know, in political theory, there's this anxiety around the category of the social. Hannah Arendt, for example, um, has argued that the uh, social is the site of inaction, right? Um, it's mm. a kind of sphere of, and she's talking in part about social reproduction, but also spaces of social life. Uh, and she's gotten chewed out by, you know, various, um, feminist theorists, for example, because of that. Um, and I, I agree with the critique. I mean, not her critique. In other words, the critique of, of, of um, of her work or of the of, of politics. It has to engage, um, if not encompass, the sphere of the social as well. And I think he's showing us why that space can be, that is the space of the club, of the bar, of the festival, of friendship. That can also be a space of meaningful political engagement, especially when the public sphere is so rotten, you know, and when there's so few opportunities for doing me- meaningful political work in um, in the spaces we think of as being political in other words electoral spaces the media the fourth estate you know um so i think it's it's really important and and the other thing i want to say is that there's a now this is maybe a liberal sentiment but there is compassion in um that interest in social life and i do believe that there could be some degree you know, some kind of coming together um if that kind of recognition uh of of people's uh, basic needs for human interaction desire to live in the world if that if we attended to that if we if we really thought about that then we could build tremendous bridges across, um, these huge political gulfs and not in order to meet at the center, but to meet at a, at a, in another place, you know? So one thing that I talk about in that chapter is, this is of course the whole Brexit discussion is around this. How do you deal with, um, with liberal disenfranchisement, um, on the right, you know, and a feeling that people, some mm-hmm. people have on the right, um including on the, you know, the radical right, um, that they have been disowned by, uh, by liberalism, that they don't get anything out of liberalism, that their world has shrunk, or that inequality has reduced them to a sort of semblance of a human being. Um, and I think he is interested in that topic. And more to the point, I think he shows us that there are ways of interacting um, that can actually create solidarities, you know, um, and it's it's a bit of a cliche to say, you know, have a basketball game and all of a sudden the, uh, you know, these various factions will come together and, you know, show teamwork and that sort of thing. But there, there is also something interesting to me just in terms of, you know, sort of outside of the liberal question, but in terms of how politics works, to think that that kind of collaboration uh, can actually generate
1: something interesting. Hmm. I'm, I am going to challenge you a little bit on on some of this yeah, reading please. because one of the notes that I took when I was reading a chapter, and and maybe this is something I already thought about Tillmans and and arts artists like him, is that while they make a, a a good case for for liberal values, and and Tillmans has been very explicit. You you cite him saying that should Brexit go ahead, it would validate the hatred of. Of anti-liberal sentiments so you Mm -hmm. know essentially if Britain voted to leave that would mean that we have been taken over by by people who are just utterly unacceptable and vile and that's that's something that I took issue with straight away because Mm -hmm. the liberals contempt for anti-liberal sentiment um, I think is incredibly counterproductive for a couple of reasons there's also another moment where we let you cite and and Tillmans is just showing himself to be completely incapable of understanding of the realities of the lives of in, in this particular conversation that you cite of him with a politician from Lower Saxony. Um, Tillmuth just kind of is incredulous to the idea that the rural right. pool in Germany would be alienated. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple of things to think about. You already mentioned the idea that they might have been disenfranchised that this, you know, this new right or this kind of you right, whichever, whichever, whichever we ascribe to. These are people who are disenfranchised from liberalism. They've forgotten how good liberalism would have been for them. And here, my question to Tillmans, maybe to you, is: Well, how effective then is the work that Tillmans is producing at convincing those left behind that liberalism is good for them? And two, actually, is it not feasible that there are other ways of organising ones? attitudes to freedoms in ways other than those liberal ones. And, and of course, it's it's a kind of very quick talking point to start descending into conversations about the undesirability of racism, homophobia, etc., as, again, you cite Tillman's doing. And I'm nowhere near suggesting that we should be, say, tolerant of those kind of views at a level of organising society. But I think the dismissal of the... Liberal artist and the liberal critic of all alternatives of all suggestions for reforming aspects of liberalism as automatically undesirable because of those kind of you know, right. deep right wing, essentially fascist qualities. I think is, is actually super counterproductive to the project of um, maintaining and adapting and re evaluating the liberal values themselves. So, in a sense, like the first line of critique is always, oh, but look, you know, Tolman's has it so good. He's he's jetting off between one plane or another, right. and he becomes ambassador to for neoliberalism in in Lagos, and that that's kind of shallow, you know. It's good for him, but the second second question is just is just how good is he at convincing his audiences, those that are not already on his side, and equally therefore privileged that what he's proposing is going to be functional and how right. does it actually ideologically work with their conceptions how much space does liberalism the the you know the idea of freedom of belief freedom of conviction how encompassing is it of of that kind of dissent
0: well i i agree with the premise of your of your question uh in other words i agree that his political statements are ineffectual in a sense um, and that the people who Mm -hmm. he could potentially be reaching out to are not there or they won't receive those statements. The only people who are paying attention to those or to what he's saying are either in his camp or sympathetic to his camp or perhaps apolitical and are interested in his work because it has, you know, pictures of sexy boys in it and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And so. Nothing wrong with that. No, I mean, that's why I like his work, you know, and in fact, my, (laughs) my interest you go
1: I, this is this is this is all i need for the tailor you like his, you like his work because of the pretty <laughs> yeah. boys good That's well yeah we But need. you my know,
0: first my first encounters with his work yeah. were ambivalent because i felt that they were such it was such a scene you know it was like his and now i'm contradicting maybe some of the things i say in the book but um his exhibitions show in fact if you go see them um and you pay attention to the crowd there they reveal all of the hierarchies that you see in queer life um and uh I can't blame him for that exactly. I mean, that's part of uh, the art world too, I suppose, is that those hierarchies exist or they um, overlap in some sense with uh, other kinds of, let's say, subcultures and certainly queer and gay subcultures in particular. So I think that that is there. And those are some of the reasons why I find his work quite interesting. Um, And it should also be added that he does a lot of work that is basically outside of gallery spaces and that you might encounter in a magazine or something. And so they do have other kinds of, they allow for other kinds of interface. Um, But this is why I I think that we need to kind of reduce the the figure, reduce the celebrity. It's hard with him because, of course, he is this kind of... um, you know, delightful figure. Um, people enjoy, I suppose, interacting with him and, um, having him serve, uh, on juries. And, uh, you know, he's a frequent kind of guest speaker at uh, museums mm. and institutions. Um, he, he also, his work, I think is, as I say in the, in the chapter, in some ways it is very much continuous, even though he, he, Does not really do, you know, he doesn't do commercial fashion photography, but his work is published in certain commercial magazines and it's very much continuous with the aesthetic sensibilities of, as you say, neoliberalism. Some of his work is, I should say. So, yes, that's all there. That's all true. And I agree that. It, maybe this is a sort of separate point, but you mentioned it. I mean, I agree that there needs to be attention paid to the anxieties of people who have been dispossessed by liberalism. I absolutely agree. You know, I often think about um, this, the woman who was killed um, uh, on January the 6th during the insurrection at the U.S. Mm. Capitol. She was a school teacher or something. She had been completely brainwashed by listening to right-wing radio. Uh, she was confused. Um, and she made a video of herself on her way to Washington, D.C. for this event. And in it, she said, I can no longer be a bystander. I can no longer be a bystander, you know. And that really struck me, in part because Hannah Arendt has said the exact same thing about her own political becoming. You know, she realized at a certain point in her life, she could no longer be a bystander. Now, she was not confused about what she needed to pay attention to at that moment in her life, certainly. But that desire to live in the world, that desire to participate in 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 action, in uh, making decisions, in being having the capacity to judge and with others judge, make decisions and um, and move. I suppose you know that is a very real and a very important uh, part of human experience. You know, and I don't want to speak in too too universalizing of terms, but um, that is the basis for politics: is the desire to get involved in a real way. Um, and I think that. Tillman shares that desire, and I think his work impels that feeling. I mean, it, not only does it show, but it, part, it participates, I suppose, in these kind of world-making and world-forming uh, events and scenes. And I know people, this is anecdotal, but I know people who were very kind of right-wing or um, sympathetic to the right, and then they came out of the closet, and it turns out that they they didn't really have those sentiments. They just you know wanted to be part of something, right? Um, so I, I think that there is, <laughs> I'm speaking in somewhat abstract terms here, <laughs> um, and I don't mean to dismiss, obviously, the critiques of the right. I mean, it's horrifying. It's utterly horrifying. But I think uh, at the same time, one has to pay attention to people who feel left out. I mean, that is so important. And not to, you know, so much of the inc- what passes for inclusion in liberal institutions is just uh, absolutely paltry and um, in some ways uh, condescending. And this is a big problem with social practice. I mean, something we can talk about maybe a little bit later, but... Uh...
1: Mm. Does that
0: make sense? Does that
1: re- answer your yeah, question? Yeah, it makes sense. I'm. I was laughing slightly because I I have quite a fundamental disagreements with with some some of your attitudes, and I don't particularly want to go on record and and make it sound like I'm have any defenses of any of the particularities of uh, political demagoguery that you might have alluded to. But I think one of the biggest problems of liberalism, as and I already mentioned this in my last question, is its contempt for illiberalism so the fact that we automatically frame anyone who might be straying towards the right homophobic as this kind of persona non grata until they happen to as you were just saying um, you know, come out of a closet and and make themselves appear like a good liberal. We don't need to look far, but the front pages of the New York Times before we figure out that actually the the liberal left, or in fact the the, the centrist and the general liberalism, has its own clubs for belonging, and those clubs yes. continue to be reinvented, and they are more often uh, they not determined by exactly the same extractive forces. You know, the question of Gender, which is not going to go away anytime soon, which is a flip side of, you know, of the coming out of the closet that you were talking about, is, is showing itself to be significantly ideologically motivated. There is an element of brainwashing in half of these conversations without necessarily even wanting to point a finger at anything in particular. But, you know, I think I've done it now. Um, I, 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 think, I think each, both, both the left and the right, have pathologies yes. exactly Exactly like that. And art's position, art's position within all of that, continues to be to be for crabs and all of that.
0: Yes, I mean I completely agree with you. And this is both one of the challenges of of anti-liberalism and one of the opportunities of anti-liberalism. I mean, what is going to go in the place of this kind of middling liberalism that you have correctly, I think, identified with the New York Times? You know, to me, that is another kind of withdrawal from the world. You know, that the people who write uh, some, m- most of the columnists, I think for the New York times and certainly their editorial board, you know, they do not live in the world necessarily. They live in a sphere of elite culture. Um, and I don't say that to kind of repeat the talking points of right wingers because my, my sense is that the quality of their elitism is a bit different. I don't necessarily see them as being cultural elites, exactly whatever that could mean, but, um, simply as being, you know, wealthy people who lived in extremely privileged environments, mm. um, all of their lives and have never really had to um, have engagements with I mean, not just right wing poor people, but left wing people, you know, mm. um, and so there is a kind of um, anti worldliness that I think is part of what they do. And that's a part of neoliberalism, too. I mean, the whole destruction of um, Uh, Now, I'm using a term maybe to mean a couple of different things, but the the destruction of certain kinds of public life, you know, the privatization of public education, for example, that is an anti-worldliness that I see Mm. as being endemic to neoliberalism. Um, And I also do agree with you that um, the left falls victim to the same kind of um, confusion Uh, or people on the left, certain people on the left fall victim to this. Some of it has to do with the kind of media ecosystem that we live with, which is also one that is completely privatized. Um, And, uh, you know, I think there are questions about whether what it means to have a shared reality. And I'm, I'm, you know, as you might, as you can perhaps tell from reading the book, I'm hesitant to use that kind of language because whoever determines that shared reality tends to have a kind of interest. And so, so the ideological issues, um, they're there, but I don't want to necessarily privilege any one point of view. I, I view um, the, 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 the idea of after-liberalism as being an open one. Um, my own sentiments lie with the kind of abolitionist project, um, and I I do say that sort of later in the book, um, but I recognize that there is a degree to of of radical um, openness and instability that comes with the loss of a dominant regime. You know, absolutely.
1: Well, I think we're in in a very good place actually now. Then it's yeah. even if we don't necessarily agree as to what is the most likely outcome of this current moment. I think I think I can count on you in in whatever the next revolution is. At least yes. to understand, at least to 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 wave the flag forwards for a radical reform of of liberalism. And I mean, I'm I'm, I'm slight, slightly joking here, but you know, we've we've corresponded a little bit in as much as the 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 question of what comes after liberalism seems yes. to be at the moment being being answered in the media with with the. With the words post-liberalism, which of course doesn't actually mean we're figuring it out. It's, it's a term that has already had defined meaning in the 1980s and, and right. it sort of hearts back to a certain type of Thatcherism and, and Reagan politics, which, which you know maybe is, is something that we might get to see a cosplay of in, in UK politics in the near yeah. future. Um, we definitely have you know the liberal institutions preparing themselves for that onslaught. But i want to I wanted to use our final minutes to actually get back to the book a little bit. you know we've yeah. we've done this kind of what happens next in the world. But I don't think we've covered quite a lot of the world yet. Um, I was struck, and we've already alluded to this, I was struck by how eurocentric some of your case studies are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's interesting in, in in itself. it's It's interesting how maybe the American artwork doesn't produce. Nearly as many examples of of this kind of friction moment, even though, of course, the forensic architecture affair uh, took place in New York, but you know, it's, a, it's a an international a affair. The in British, some ways, Brit- yeah. Brit- but I want to I want to to turn towards China as you do um, mm-hmm. in one of your chapters um, when you look at the career, the short career of the um, artist Ren Hang, who I guess aesthetically isn't a million miles away from. From some other thing that Wolfgang Tillmans does, right. but a context in which um, this practice, which is sometimes kind of you know body oriented documentary, sometimes mm-hmm. it's to do with with fashion, sometimes it's to do with sexuality. Some of the framing is incredibly interesting. But how that practice, being rooted in China, actually doesn't do very much within China, but is a fantastic export. Yeah. But Renghang essentially is recognised abroad. For his liberal values, for the fact that his work represents some kind of reaffirmation of these these values and ideas that we have been discussing,
0: I, I suppose in uh, so many of these examples, of course, take place within liberal society, um, with liberal governments and um, freedom of the press, uh, at least putatively. Um, so I thought it would be uh, important to look at examples from elsewhere, and I had been thinking about his work for a long time. Uh, in part because um, of the way it's essentially been marketed to American audiences as this sort of um, glib and ironic w- work um, that, yes, is uh, queer or, or sort of uh, engages in a queer body politics, um, but also is uh, using the, the sort of visual um, rhetoric perhaps that we associate with. I, I get, you know, it's not so much with sort of the the Socialist imagery um, that exists in China, but the ideas of uh, Beijing as being this site of kind of mimetic uh, architectural space, um, and I just thought that the works—you know—sometimes you see things that seem so marketed to you, as it were, or um, are are so perfect in their distillation of varying um, assumptions of of uh, aesthetics in different environments. And I I was also curious uh, and remain curious about just what happens to an artwork when it moves between different kinds of environments. And we've talked about that a little bit with other examples, like Manaf Halbuni's Buses at the beginning of this conversation. Um, But here it's like this work that is perhaps, I mean, it is controversial in the sense that it was certain works of, of Ren's were taken down when they were on view in Beijing. Um, a work that is controversial in an environment like that can come into the space of the the, the free West. And, um, you you know, for me, it's not that it kind of lights up when it gets here. It's that all of its political potential is drained and it becomes Mm -hmm. mm, pure gloss. uh, And the, the sort of fashiony, uh, seamless imagery that he he uses just becomes another part of this kind of continuity of design, publishing, fashion photography um, that is ubiquitous in um, uh, the American and European medias.
1: One of the things that, that's come to my mind as we've been talking is the Relationship between liberalism and, and capital, and and yeah. and the reliance on one and and the other, and and I wonder if this is not maybe the the simplest thing to observe in the world. But but in as much as we have observed many times that capitalism does not really thrive on democracy all that much, that it's completely agnostic when it comes to the state formation. A similar question posed to liberalism and neoliberalism itself is. Is even more interesting, and I think the Chinese example right. is is maybe maybe a good case study here, because you res, you describe Ren Hang as as someone who's doing work that is reflecting on the limits of of the freedoms that his society mm-hmm. is in. He, he's even in this interesting position where he keeps his career hidden from his family right. while exactly. already having you know being internationally renowned for right. for for what he does. So in a sense. I'm trying to figure out where where it is that liberalism has already seeped into Chinese society, and whether, if we agree that liberalism is not a feature of Chinese society, whether neoliberalism indeed is, yes. in as much as the work can circulate. And of course, you know, it's, it's, it would be would be naive to think that liberalism and neoliberalism are the same thing. They're, right. In, in you know standard definitions we think that neoliberalism is the kind of re- renewed economic project mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. liberalism exactly. but actually may, maybe it isn't and and maybe the question which is which is going back to a previous moment maybe the question of what happens next is to do a lot more to do with capital as opposed to to liberalism yes. you know? so in that kind of sense of imposing values on the rest of the world you know does does the us do the Western allies have any hope of bringing in liberalism to China? But then, you know, what what do we do about the fact that capitalism no longer relies on that, and and we do have the, kind of the odd, the odd artist, the odd cultural artifact traversing the boundary, telling yes. us that there is a disjunction. You know, in that case, art really does have, you know, culture has a really, really special place in in being able to to really remind remind us that these these systems are not compatible Mm -hmm. beyond the the one thing that actually oppresses us all. And the one thing that we could probably all agree on, we more or less unhappy with.
0: is capitalism. What your question makes me think of is just the zeal for capitalism in uh, the Chinese art market in the 1990s and 2000s and uh, the the end of the 1980s too. And this is something that Chinese artists Mm -hmm. were of course aware of. And, um, and Chinese artists travel, you know, and live in the West. And many students at um, art schools where I've worked um, in the United States um, are, uh, you know, are from Chinese cities. And um, certainly, that's true of architects as well. What to make of that? I mean, one could say values and cultural politics uh, defy um, some of the um, kind of overarching uh, uh, economic. Uh, divisions that we that we see or that we tend to talk about, um, and there is more cross pollination than um, one might think. Um, of course, like in the the West, most of the people who are able to travel in those ways to move between these spaces um, have a kind of privilege, um, and so in a way, the structural components um, match one another um, across uh, you know across borders. I'm I'm somewhat at a loss about you know where that puts liberalism with, in relation to Chinese society, um, and, and how that squares or doesn't with, um, the kind of geopolitical questions of this new cold war that seems to be appearing, Mm -hmm. um, between the West and China. I don't think it's, this might be an instance where, um, culture, that is to say, fine arts, um, films, you know, music, uh, has to perform its liberalism only up to a point. um, And some of the underlying structural dynamics will remain the way they are, um, or, or the, the more um, politically oriented, uh, kind of elements of, of public life, like the press, you know, those things take the brunt of, um, new enclosures, that is political enclosures rather than economic ones. And then again, culture is denuded and, uh, it starts to lack it's it's the edge that it might have under other conditions you know, I I feel remiss talking about this and kind of trying to make predictions except to say that, um this might be one of the instances where we see the kind of limits of art as a political object, um or we see the way it remains tethered to um political economy as it exists you know and this is sort of the art as um, merely culture. Right. do you know what i mean by that
1: yeah no i think i, I think those limits are incredibly interesting and i'm yeah. completely speculating along, alongside with you i mean just to just to think about a couple of examples i mean i know that certain types of cultural exports that go from the west to china are um both treated with with extreme extreme freedom and there is a massive appetite by chinese society mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. for culture so you know, I know someone who produces contemporary dance and mm-hmm. the moment the moment you need um, half a million dollars in the bank for for the next two years, you go on a tour in China, and like right. it's it's, it's all, all all perfectly done. But as a, and and the politics, you know, of course, this this work is political here, but it's not censored when it comes to China. It's not seen as political right. when it arrives right. in China. Right. Exactly. And conversely, I've I've for a long time wondered whether. Whether certain Chinese dissidents, you know, Ai Weiwei being the prime examples, are so much of a threat to the Chinese regime, whether 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 the liberalism of the practice of someone like Ai Weiwei even registers, because you know, to be a little bit morbid about it, if the Chinese state thought that Ai Weiwei was a threat to their politics, they they would have silenced him successfully. They had the means to do that, yet they chose not to. So you know, we we have plenty of examples. I think. To, of of where these limits are are quite hard and, and art yes. doesn't produce in politics.
0: Yes, I agree with you, and I, I I very much take your point and agree with your point about in in a politicized society that is in a society that emphasizes um, the normative aspects of politics, public demonstrations, um, mm-hmm. you know, party loyalty, uh, the kind of performance of politics in that sense. These cultural objects. I mean, they they represent one of the things I talk about with Ren's work is that it does represent a kind of descent from that. You know, it's it's minor in a sense. It represents yeah. a descent from um, that yes, normative or a state level or party level kind of politics. Yes, um, but at the same time, you you do really see the difference between culture and politics in those environments, whereas. In the United States, where there's so we live in a very anti-political society in many ways. Um, I mean, I think that's changing. That is what the reason why I'm writing the book is because I think that is changing and people are becoming politicized, for better or worse. Um, But in this environment, people look to culture for for moral and political ideas, and so so I think that's that is one kind of thing that I I take from your comment. But it's also really worth saying that. We are living in this period of um, economic shocks, of um, breakdown, uh, of unevenly distributed um, fits and starts. And so that is already changing um, geopolitics. Uh, and it, it is a big question mark. I mean, this is one of the reasons why it's so hard to predict what will come after liberalism is the dominant global political and economic regime. But. Um, because we can't predict exactly the future of u s China relations because so much of it depends on trade um, and on other kinds of um, uh, relationships that are themselves dependent on um, on ecologies, on the availability of resources, on the availability of labor. I mean, this is so this is the story that we're living with now. Um, and so, Yes, that is what makes it a particularly interesting topic, but it becomes very, very challenging. And uh, not just to us as essentially outsiders to the political world, um, but also to people who are, you know, to our heads of state, they they really don't know. Um, and their advisors don't know. So it's an interesting moment, certainly with regard to those things. If I could say mm-hmm. one other thing, but your references to the idea of the return to traditional or pre-secular kinds of um, movements. I think you really strongly see that in the arts in terms of a kind of return to craft um, in terms of uh, certain presentations of decolonial thinking. I don't know if you went to Venice this year, but it It is full of, so you saw, I mean, it was an exhibit that was full of anti-modernist, anti-secular works Mm -hmm. I can't say whether their presentation was successful because I, I, my sense is that most of the audience members, you know, did not understand the cosmologies that they were presenting and understood the works as being purely um, aesthetic or being even kind Mm of uh, diagrammatic in a sense. I mean, some of the works that were chosen were chosen clearly, you know, because they can be photographed and circulated on social media. Um, So it, to me, that is one of the kind of main threads, and it's interesting that they would also almost imply that decolonization was, you know, sort of invented um, on the psychiatrist's couch while uh, Dorothea Tanning and Leonora Carrington were were sitting there. You know, it's a really fascinating kind of <laughs> and strange uh, route through art history to get to the present moment. But uh, to me, that was a, a really um, demonstrative. Um, example of the turn away from uh, liberalism in this within the sphere of representation, essentially.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a very, very good read. I mean, my, my impression of Venice was that it was completely devoid of politics, but I was completely inspired by yeah. the attention to aesthetic aspects of the work.
0: It's an interesting case, you know, and uh, I'm not crazy about social practice. I'm not crazy about socially engaged <laughs> art as a genre. Um, and I, I hope that comes through in some of the chapters of my book. Um uh, in a way, I think those can be interesting and certainly they create more problems than they, at times they create more problems than they solve. Um, but there is also a kind of um, space within representation or within the more traditional plastic arts. Um, and yes, mm. within craft, uh, which of course has a practical dimension, but yeah. um, where some of these things are being worked out or, 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 or there's an attempt to think about some of these issues that we've raised around politics.
1: Thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you for joining Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Art After Liberalism by Nicholas Gamso is published by Columbia University Press. I'm Pierre Lanser and dear Therese Marshall Poe. Thanks for listening and join us next time.